This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we're diving into something happening all around us in Seattle, even though most people don't realize it. Sex trafficking. In our region, we are the largest metropolitan area. And anywhere that there are lots of people, and specifically lots of men, there's going to be lots of trafficking. Because 99 to 100% of buyers are men. That's Audrey Bedke, Director of Programs at Real Escape from the Sex Trade, or REST, a nonprofit organization that serves survivors in King County. June Guzman manages the 24-7 hotline and emergency shelter for REST. In this episode, we talk with June and Audrey about their work and what it's shown them about the urgency of this issue in our region right now. But we focus mostly on that hotline, what people who call are often looking for, what it's like for June to answer those calls, what stories still stick with both June and Audrey, and what a hotline like this, at its core, really means. I was curious just to sort of get some definitions up top. I think people who are not involved in this conversation very often might, you know, have different ideas about the term sex trafficking. And I was wondering how you define it. Yeah, there are two elements to sex trafficking. The first is um, trading sexual services for something of value. The second part that makes it trafficking is when a person is doing that because of force, fraud, or coercion, or when they are under 18 years old. So the idea is that um, it is trafficking when a person is not engaging because of their choice, um, not because they are an adult who is wanting to do this, but because there is a third party that's coming in and interfering, or because there is um, the age element. When you're under 18, you can't consent to trade sex for something of value. We work with all ages. We work with all genders. And we have found that in our local area, there's likely two to 3,000 individuals that are sold for sex every night, and it's estimated about 500 of those are youth. Seattle is known to be one of the top cities for sex trafficking. The reality is that trafficking is happening here, and it's happening at even more alarming rates since the onset of COVID. Both women were allegedly being used in a sex trafficking scheme. SeaTac International Airport, an area that can be a hot spot for trafficking. I'm Audrey Bedke, Director of Programs at REST. I'm also a co-founder, so I've been with REST since the very beginning. and. Um, I oversee all of the services that we offer. Outreach, a 24-7 hotline, specialized services including mental health, substance use, and employment, and housing, including emergency, transitional, and permanent housing services. My name is June, and I'm a case manager at REST, and I help with um, the main things are resources and referral, um, emotional support, and advocacy. One of the services that REST provides, I understand, is a 24-7 hotline. And I just wanted to know what it's like to answer those calls. June, are you the person or a person who answers the phones? Yes, um, I do. It it is a part of my job. Um, I am multitasking. So the hotline is a portion of the service that I offer. And then I also am helping um, to uh, case manage in the shelter, which is a seven bed shelter. So for example, if you're answering phones, 
you're doing other things, but if the phone rings, you pick it up. Yeah. And sometimes it is um, prioritizing on the spot. So I may get a um, hotline caller that um, I can answer the phone, um, ask them to hold for a moment, um, close the door, get that privacy, start the call. Um, I may be um, meeting with a guest and hear the phone ring and ask them to hold for a second and then run back to the office and take the call. So um, it is kind of just prioritizing in the whim of the moment and seeing what needs to happen um, sooner rather than later. (laughs) So a lot of kind of triage in some ways, I guess. Yeah. What is a common theme among those calls? Is there something, are there reasons that people call that come up over and over? Um, I think the biggest amount of calls surrounds housing, looking for a shelter bed. Yeah, our data shows that half of our calls are people that are seeking housing. A third of our calls are people who are seeking emotional support. Mm. Um, But people can call for many reasons, um, including housing, basic needs, um, childcare, um, transportation. And even we get callers that are from law enforcement, community partners, parents, or family members wanting to learn more about sex trafficking and how to support someone that they are working with. Yeah. Right. I mean, housing, it's kind of the biggest issue in this entire state. So I could imagine that's a a lot of what people are needing and asking for. I wonder, June, is there a call that you've gotten that you think might stick with you? There's a lot of calls that are really um, just uh, impactful that I won't forget. Um, One of the calls that sticks with me is um, a hotline call that we received from a caller that had fleed her own home and trafficker um, after she was set on fire. And she called the shelter looking for a bed. And then we helped her get to, um, to the state from another state. And from there, she was able to come to our shelter and have services and Um, That trickled into helping her find employment, also supporting housing. And then with that, um, once she had that stability secured, um, while in this shelter, she was getting her medical needs met and she was able to schedule um, needed oral um, surgery to finish repairing the damage from the fire. Wow. When that call came in, what did that feel like for you? Um, It kind of feels like I'm taking in new information when I hear a unique story. Um, And I just naturally have this, what can I do? Instinct is uh, what do we have available? What is something that I can search if I'm not able to provide a service in that moment that will help? I think in that moment, uh, just listening and finding out the context so that I can meet the need as a whole, because sometimes there's a lot of context and you could think instinctively, I need to give this person this, but once they tell the whole story, there might be a a different perspective. And so just listening. Sometimes we don't get enough information and we have to make a decision based off of it. And I remember there was a day that A client called and said, I'm at this gas station and I need an Uber right now and hung up the phone. And we thought, we don't know who this person is. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know what's going on, but let's take the risk. 
And so we sent an Uber there. Um, the Uber driver picked them up, brought them to our location. And then from here, we were able to find out more of what was going on. And in this case, she had had a former buyer who had found her and had made threats towards her. And she actually was someone who had worked with us before. And so she felt confident that we might be able to show up in that moment. And then she was able to make a plan from there, how to decompress and what she wanted to do next. June, I was curious if um, you encounter a lot of fear from people who call, who need to be anonymous, or maybe they're always anonymous, but they are afraid of asking for help because of what their trafficker might do. I mean, is that something that comes up in some of your conversations? Um, It does come up. (laughs) Um, We are able to um, save a name that they go by. Mm-hmm. And I try to, if I sense that there is some fear um, to creating a profile or something like that, um, then I offer that as soon as possible, just going through the motions, just adding that safety element um, in whatever way needed while I, while we're talking. And I think asking the right questions and listening in, seeing where where gauging where the fear is. Um, is it a hundred right now? Or is there just a few... Um, specific things that we need to get past for barriers to be able to move forward to meet their needs. If it is a hundred, what's the response? Um, Asking permission, I think is huge. I just think it makes a difference. And this has probably been done for me in some parts of my life where when someone says, let me know where I can meet you with this. It sounds like you need this. Um, Do you have any ideas for how I can get this information to you or how you can better access this? What have you done so far? And then do I have permission um, to ask a a couple more questions? Um, Or how do you feel about this is a lighter way of asking permission. How do you feel about answering this? Those kinds of things can be really helpful um, in the beginning of a call. I wonder if there was a a call where someone just needed someone to talk to. Does that happen? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've had a call where um, there's been specific emotional support um, and they knew what they wanted. Um, And then I've had um, a call or calls, I should say on both ends, where they call for one thing and then after having time to be heard, we find out there's several things. With a specific caller, this person um, wanted to help with some grounding exercises. And I was familiar with the term, but he seemed like he needed really specific grounding techniques. And so I was able to um, search um, the web and find one that he had asked for and then help walk through um, some of those grounding techniques. And it just felt like it was really needed. And by the end of the call, Um, That person was calmer and able to just have a casual conversation um, and and thank thank me for the services and um, let me know that they'd call back later. (laughs) And that was really helpful. So um, I thought, well, I did something new and I learned something new and I was um, giving emotional support. So that felt great. We had a client once who said, when you lose your job, When you have somebody yell at you, when you have a bad day, who do you call? 
well, I don't have a grandma, I don't have a best friend, and even if I did, they wouldn't understand my trauma. But every time I call the REST hotline, they get it. That's what the hotline is all about for us. I'm thinking of a call uh, that keeps popping up in my head, so I must need to talk about it. (laughs) Um, It was one of those calls where they called for something and what I was gathering was more they needed to be heard. Um, But it was multiple things and um, some of which may have been uh, mental health. And so um, they were calling thinking that someone was uh, climbing up a ladder to their window and they had the burner on and they were boiling water so they could throw it out the window and be ready. Um, uh, Gathering more information, they had called authorities um, and it seemed that they had done that often. Um, And so uh, we did kind of breathing and counting exercises while gathering more information. And I was able to uh, get to the point with that caller where they felt like they did not see someone climbing up the window and they were able to turn off the burner. And I think also have the time that was needed to be heard in that conversation. And so it was like a de-escalating moment. I wonder if that work ever becomes emotionally challenging for you? Well, I would say that uh, because of lived experience, I feel like the more emotional impact is when I'm unable to uh, be precise and helping them with the need in that moment. So situations where I'm struggling to find the resources. Um, I'm trying to think back uh, <laughs> to um, moments where I just ended a call and like, let me take a breather. (laughs) I think those are, those are the moments where um, you have to know self-care and um, turn to those methods. Um, Know when you need to take, take a space to yourself, just have a moment to breathe or know some exercises of your own that are go-tos. I'm familiar with breathing exercises and, um, I think that those are those are really helpful uh, to turn to when you are in need of that self-care, <laughs> helping it not to accumulate. How did you get started in this work and why? I was looking for outreach work and I have experience there, um, but specifically with um, with this role, um, it took me back to like my childhood Um, I grew up in the foster care system and like a lot of others, well, and now in this role with callers, clients, um, trafficking can be embedded in like the history, um, of our families. And, um, while in foster care, I kept in touch with my grandma, but my support and an advice that she would give me is something like, um, because of the things that she learned growing up, you should never be broke because you can always put a mattress on your back and stand on the corner. And so if that is my support, then life is even more confusing when you exit the system and you don't have role models and you don't have healthy supports. 
And I think the hotline is that bridge to like healthy supports and people that you can trust and know better (laughs) that they'll be there um, to at least guide or hold your hand through something or um, bridge that gap to something that's needed to make life a little less confusing and challenging. Audrey, how about you? I had worked with homeless youth. And as a young adult, I had had a friend who was recruited by a pimp. And as I started working with homeless youth, I saw there were a lot of youth that were also working with pimps or what they often described were their boyfriends, but they were utilizing sex to support their boyfriend. And in that, having their entire life trajectory changed. So I saw the emotional toll, the physical toll, um, and saw how difficult it was for them to begin to hope again in a life where they could control their moves, they could determine what they wanted, and they could act in ways that felt safe. So as I watched my friend go through this, as I watched homeless youth go through this, I knew that I couldn't go to sleep at night if I didn't do something about it. And being able to be a part of it is better than looking away from it. What do you think is really kind of still needed or the most needed in this region right now when it comes to supporting survivors? Based on my experiences and uh, working with individuals on the hotline and in the shelter, it would be housing, Mm -hmm. stability. It's hard to grow a community when you're not posted somewhere yet. Housing was the number one need that was identified when we started, and today that continues to be the need. And even though REST has an emergency shelter, we're at a 90% capacity. We also have transitional housing, and our houses are full. Housing. I mean, yeah, we need more housing. What do you fear and what do you hope? I fear that our world is becoming more impersonal and that we are seeing people more for what they can do for me, how they can benefit me, rather than seeing them as human beings who just being is worthy and valuable enough. And I hope that we could live in a world that sees relationships the way that we see our brothers and our sisters, our family members, and we would see that my well-being is connected to my siblings' well-being. Well, I hope to change people's lives um, in this role, the way that I've had opportunities to change mine. And I would fear, I would say not continuing to do this work because I do feel like Work can be a challenge and it is a job, but there's always this voice in my head that says they need me, just like I needed someone. And so it just keeps me coming back and wanting to reach um, people in this way. When somebody helps without obligation, it just, it tells you that you're worth more than what money can buy. What can what can help make a person feel like they're worth it and they're loved? And so um, I just don't want to stop this uh, this journey 
um, to reach people and to help them from where they're at. And it starts very young. So for me, changing a life, even in early 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even, you know, older than me, I still feel like I'm reaching that child that was caused harm. And so that just means so much to me. Thanks for listening to CrossCut Reports. This episode was reported and produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and the story editor was Ryan Femuliner. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to CrossCut Reports wherever you listen, and whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.